I'm Ramessa Rahman Kwaja, and you're listening to Real Talk with Rue, a podcast with real moments and real conversations. I believe when we can peel back our layers and speak from a place of truth, what we find out is that we have much more in common than we think. I've built my career helping people achieve positive changes in their lives by providing them with meaningful tools to implement day by day. Each guest on Real Talk with Rue will be giving their testimony on how they continue to go from someday to day one. Hello, hello, and welcome to another week of the pod. I am Ramessa Kwaja, and here we are at episode 78. Yes, 78, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm super stoked about today's guest, guys. I, I have to say, I'm usually stoked about everyone, but today I'm, I'm fangirling just a little bit. Um, we're going to hear from Dr. David Burns. If you haven't um, read the book, he has he is the best-selling author of the book, Feeling Good, which came out long ago, back in, I want to say, the 80s. And now here we are. He's coming out with a new book, came out about a couple weeks ago called Feeling Great. So he talks about how to conquer depression and anxiety and the tools that he uses. And um, I think I think you're gonna you're gonna like this one. So let's get started, shall we? Okay. Well, Dr. Burns, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's it's a real honor to have you today. It's an honor to be on the podcast with you. Thank you so much. Um, so I was telling you offline, I was just super excited. Um, you know, your book is so needed, especially during this time. Feeling Great is the title of your book. And um, I'd just like for you to share a little bit, if you could, of um, who you are and, and a little bit about your journey, if you if you could. Sure. Sure. I'm uh, right now on the adjunct faculty of the Stanford Medical School. That means I'm a slave labor faculty. They have full-time paid faculty and then volunteer uh, volunteers who teach. And I'm a, a professor in, uh, in the, on the voluntary faculty, and I've kind of devoted my life to the treatment of depression and anxiety disorders. I started out at uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School after my residency, studying brain chemistry and giving out tons of antidepressants, and most of my patients really weren't responding, and it, it was irritating. The drug companies would claim that antidepressants will cure 85% of depressed people. And I knew it was a fraud, that it wasn't true because I was giving them out. I had hundreds of, of patients. I've prescribed antidepressants on actually 13,000 occasions. Mm. And I almost never saw much, much from them. And I was really looking for ways to cure to people who are depressed and anxious so they can completely eliminate their symptoms and wake up and say, it's great to be alive. And that almost never happened with my patients. And then I heard about this kooky approach that I was very skeptical of developed by Aaron Beck, cognitive therapy. And he claimed that depression and anxiety actually result from negative thoughts, messages that you're giving yourself in the here and now. Like when you're depressed, if they're Press people, I'm sure many people listening right now have struggled with depression and anxiety and, and you're telling yourself, I'm not good enough. Uh, I, I should be better than I am. There must be something wrong with me. Why am, so, why am I so shy? I'm, 
I must have a mental disorder. I must be a basket case. And this is reinforced by the psychiatric and psychological establishment who says that our negative feelings like sadness and anxiety and shyness are caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain or, or there's something wrong with you. You have a, a mental d- disorder. Mm-hmm. And these messages create a lot of shame. And, uh, and we had actually disproved the chemical imbalance theory in the mid-1970s, I knew it was a false theory. And, and so, but I didn't believe what Beck was saying. I knew my patients had negative thoughts, but I didn't think you could change the way you think and change the way you feel. Yeah. I said, oh, my patients are too severe for that kind of silly power of positive thinking. Sounds like pop psychology and not real science. So I started going to his weekly seminar just to prove to myself that it wouldn't work. And I tried these techniques on my most severe patients, patients I was stuck with that I'd been given pills to. And I had the traditional, tell me how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, they started popping like popcorn, recovering really rapidly when I used these new techniques. And it was a shock. And I said to myself, you know, there's really something to this. And I gave up a full-time academic tenure-track position at the uh, University of Penn Medical School. Mm-hmm. I was winning awards for my research on brain chemistry, and I was offered department chairmanships uh, and things like that. But I, 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 I didn't want to do it because I knew it would never go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I gave up my, my career. I, I joined the voluntary faculty at Pan, just as I am now at Stanford, and began to work with this new approach. And I was so excited, I wrote the book, Feeling Good, because I want to share my excitement with the general public. That came out in 1980 to a very tiny initial printing. The, the, it was almost impossible to get it published, and the publishers made the decision it was going to be a failure, that it had no commercial potential. And that was uh, 1980, but it started to spread due to word of mouth because later research showed that if you had that book, Feeling Good to Someone Who's Depressed, uh, 50 to 65% of them will recover in four weeks with no other treatment, no, no drugs, no psychotherapy, just if you hand, hand the book to, to someone. And so... Psychiatrists, psychologists, medical doctors in the United States and Canada caught on, began prescribing it to to patients. And so eventually, eight years after it was published, it finally shot to the top of all the bestseller lists, was number one national bestselling book. And that kind of transformed my career. But anyway, that was step one, feeling good. And it had all these techniques to crush these cruel, distorted thoughts that you give yourself when you're depressed or anxious. And then in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, in, I have a, a weekly psychotherapy training and development group at Stanford Medical School, and it's free to community therapists because they, 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 they all need training. So, so you can come to my group. You can get unlimited free training for the rest of your life. You can, and if you need therapy, and all therapists seems really need therapy, we'll, we'll give you unlimited free therapy too, treatment. Mm-hmm. And then now we've evolved new techniques that are way more powerful even than the techniques I had in feeling good. And so I decided it's time, time for a new book, the true sequel to feeling good, and that's Feeling Great, which you can probably see behind me here on 
on the table. And it just came out about two weeks ago on, on Amazon. It took several years to write, but it has incredible new tech, techniques that make ultra-rapid recovery possible for the first time. Sure. You know, I want to I touch on this because there are there's, you know, you focus on cognitive theory and, and focusing on how we really can shift the way that we think, right? And so, so you've had experiences in your life. Um, I, I grew up with a mom with mental illness, with schizophrenia. Oh, okay. and, uh, schizophrenia, did you say? Yeah. She oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, that's, that. That is a true brain disease, and it's just so sad and so horrible. She, yeah, her and two brothers, and but then also as you, as you, oh wow, growing up, yeah, she has thirteen siblings, and three of them had it, have it. Wow, wow. Um, and and growing up, right, it doesn't just affect the person with it, but the family and the PTSD around it, and just you know, um, having those limiting beliefs and those thoughts, and just um. So, so really what you're speaking of is, you know, and, and that's something my training was in is, is in, is that shifting the way that I think you're, you know, your, your next, it, this doesn't have to be your forever, right? You can shift, right. um, lean into more happiness. And I really love how you touch on, um, you know, you, you can, you can find your joy and, um, it's really just talking yourself. Um, what is true and what's false? What are what are the, the yeah. that you have? Um, and so, how is it for you? You know, you you think you're going to be working and and doing these clinical studies and all of your life, and then you start to see that okay, well, this isn't working, but I'm seeing results in this, right? So, tell me a yeah. little bit about. Um, I mean, I love the the story if you can share with the listeners, just even um, your journey through um, your son being born. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I wrote about that. I use a lot of my personal issues because I, I think, you know, physician heal thyself is tremendously important. And both I and my wife have both used these uh, techniques in our personal lives and they've been a, made a tremendous difference. I wouldn't be try to promote ideas and techniques to my patients if I hadn't seen them working powerfully in my own life as well. And when um, my son was born, he was our second child. I was uh, still a postdoctoral fellow at the medical school in Philadelphia. And uh, our first child was a daughter, Senia, and then he came along five years later. And I got to witness the, his birth and after he was born, the, the doctor said, you, you know, you're the proud father of a, you know, a wonderfully healthy son. And, uh, but the only problem is he can't breathe very well. And uh, we're going to have to put him in the intensive care unit. And I could see that when he tried to breathe, his body would shake like this. And, and, and his, his lips had turned blue and his fingertips had turned blue. And I panicked uh, and sad, you know, I love my my little guy, but he, he's just struggling so hard to breathe. And, and he's going to the intensive pediatric intensive care unit. They're going to put him in an incubator. And the doctor was saying, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But I didn't really quite you know, believe what, what he was saying. And I just panicked. 
and, and you know, anxiety and panic and, and, and despair are feelings that people have when you're depressed and anxious. And most, most of us struggle with those feelings from time to time. Some people have those feelings constantly for years or decades at a time. So I went home. Of course, my wife was still in the hospital. I was just so anxious and so upset. And I said, David, write your negative thoughts down so you can see if they're distorted. That's what you tell your patients to do. And I thought, oh, no, 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 my, uh, that wouldn't do any good. My thoughts aren't distorted. This is a real issue. And I was thinking about, boy, I'm going to have to be taking him to, to clinics for the rest of his life. He's going to have brain damage. And, and then, you know, I, and I like that's what my patients did too. They would resist writing down their negative thoughts. And then when they'd write them down, you know, they'd have like an aha moment and see how they're distorting things and telling themselves things that aren't, aren't true. And so I, I decided to write down my negative thoughts, feeling absolutely certain it was a waste of time, but I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And then the thought was, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll be born with brain damage. And then I did what's called the downward arrow technique. Like, if that's true, what would it mean to you? Why is it upsetting to you? Well, then I'll have to be bringing him to special clinics, you know, for the rest of his life. And then if that's true, why would that be upsetting to you? And then I had the thought, well, then people will look down on me because my my son has mental retardation or is is brain damaged. And then I looked at that thought and I said, that, that's a pretty mean thought there. And that's like in mind reading, that's one of the 10 distortions. Fortune telling, that's another one of the 10 distortions is kind of all or nothing thinking. And I said, how would you talk back to that, David? And I said, well, maybe I could tell myself that people respond to me based on how I treat them. And if I love them and care for them and my patients, if I'm helpful to them, that's all they care about. They're, they're not going to judge me based on my son's intelligence or lack of intelligence or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And when I had that thought, I said, wow, that's true. And then I, I felt ashamed. I said, look at you, David, you're worrying about yourself. Mm-hmm. And your son is right now struggling in the intensive care unit. And these negative thoughts because you be so anxious, they're really kind of self-centered and selfish. And I said, you know, you're right. And this was like about two in the morning, but because I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and, you know, as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychiatry, I realized I would be able to, to get into the intensive care unit because I can go anywhere in the hospital. So I said, I, David, you need to go over there and give your son some love. And and so I drove you know, panic frantically over to the hospital and went up to the pediatric in- intensive care unit. And uh, the nurses said, here, here, you know, you can see your son here. And uh, there was kind of a glove thing, you know, that you could put your hand in to touch him, but through a glove, like a hole in the, the incubator he was in. And I felt so sad because he was just struggling, shaking his body to, to get air in, in his lungs at every breath and he he looked so exhausted and I just put my head hand through there and I put my hand on his head and I just said Eric I, I just want you to know you have a, a daddy and a mommy who love you and, and I just love you so much and I want you just to to feel this uh, feel my love I wish I could pick you up and hold you and comfort you and then um, you know, I, I was with them for a few minutes and, and, and then, then I went, went on home again. 
And when I got home, there was a call from the hospital, from the intensive care unit. And it was one of the nurses. And she said, I just want you to know that when you left, something kind of strange happened. Your son, Eric, started breathing normally right away. And he got all pink and he has no trouble breathing. So the doctor has already discharged him from the intensive care unit. And he's with his mother you know, happily nursing right right now and just brought tears to my eyes. But it was a, a personal example of, uh, you know, how it's not the events of this life that upset us, but but the way you you, you think about it. And I was so off track too. I, I, I was with him yesterday for his uh, 44th birthday. So that must have been 44 years ago. And uh, he was uh, camping out here for for a little while with with my wife and myself, and he was playing a beautiful song on on the piano. And you know, he's very tall, and handsome, and hunky guy <laughs> qualities I never had. And you know, he went to Stanford, and he's just he's way smarter than than his dad. But uh, we just had a beautiful hug again uh, yesterday and, you know, tearful. And, Dad, I love you so much. And, Eric, I love you so much. And uh, it was just it was just, just a beautiful moment. But it, it just, you know, it was just a practical personal example of, you know, what I write, write about in my books, that when you're upset, it's not the events of this world that are upsetting you. It's not the COVID or the politics, as, as miserable as those things are, but it's the messages that you give yourself. And when you're depressed and anxious, you're almost always telling yourself things that aren't true. Depression and anxiety are the world's oldest cons. You'll be having thinking errors like black and white, all or nothing thinking, or self-blame, or hidden should statements, or emotional reasoning. I feel like a loser, so I must be one. I feel hopeless, so I must be be hopeless. And uh, fortune-telling, and mind-reading, and mental filtering, and magnification, and minimization, and labeling, and overgeneralization, all these thinking errors. But the really cool thing is that the moment you change the way you think, you can change the way you feel. The very moment I saw how off base my negative thought was, my feelings instantly changed. It doesn't take years to recover from even severe chronic depression and anxiety. Recovery can happen in a flash. And now with my the new techniques I have that I talk about in the new book, Feeling Great, recovery is for uh, my patients is even faster, way faster than when I helped develop cognitive therapy, you know, in the late 1970s and 1980 and and, and beyond. And uh, in those days, cognitive therapy was a breakthrough. When I wrote Feeling Good, it was unknown. And there were only about 12 of us in the world and we were all considered quacks. Right. Uh, isn't that insane? It's back. It's it's like it's it's working, but how can it be? It's not science. It's not you know. Yeah, yeah, practice. yeah. But yeah. then now it's become the most researched form of psychotherapy in human history. There's over. I I saw a colleague, one of my students, sent me a review article a couple of weeks ago that was listing actually I think three thousand nine hundred controlled outcome studies on cognitive therapy. It's the most researched form of psychotherapy in human history and it's the most popular form of 
of uh, psychotherapy because Feeling Good has sold millions and millions of copies and it's been translated into 30, 40 languages and published all over the world. But the, the techniques in there were considered a major breakthrough at the time. It was called the cognitive revolution. Mm-hmm. And my patients would typically recover in six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, which was considered impossible at the time because I was taught as a resident and residents are still taught, psychiatric trainees, that recovery from depression takes years and you have to be taking medications and the most you can hope for is improvement, but don't look for recovery. It's not going to happen. Those kind of messages And so when my patients were having full recoveries and lasting recoveries in six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, it was considered massive, a massive change. But now with the new techniques and feeling great, my patients typically recover in one session, which seems like a lie. It seems like a con, but it really, it it happens 90% of the time. Now that has to be a two hour session. I can't do it in an hour, but I can almost always do it in an hour and a half or two hours. And so I now think of the treatment of depression as a procedure, like open heart surgery. You, You get it, you know, in an afternoon, you go from all the way from A, A to, Z, to Z, and then you have a, maybe a 30-minute relapse prevention training, and it's, it's kind of one and done. And this is another major breakthrough, I think, in the history of uh, psychiatry and psychology. And, and so I wrote Feeling Great so the general public can get direct access to these techniques because just as in the early days of cognitive therapy, there aren't that many people who know how to do it yet. Mm-hmm. There, there's quite a growing number, but I, I want to go direct to the general public. And it's also for therapists like yourself who might really enjoy using these techniques that can cause this incredibly rapid and, and dramatic recovery from pretty severe m- mood problems. Sure. Yeah, I'm not a therapist. I'm a coach, but I, I, right. I, I coach people to do you know like these action steps right or just even like what you're saying is is thinking back what are the thoughts um what are the thoughts when you're feeling depressed or where you're feeling sad and and just dif- differentiating what's true and what's reality yeah focusing on those possibilities focusing on what's going right focusing on the joys and so even for now if you think about with COVID and then there's these kiddos. I mean, you, you see these kids, um, so many teens that are prescribed ADHD and all these medications. Yeah. And yeah. Do you, do you know what Adderall is? What? It's Dexedrine, a street narcotic. There's three stimulants, benzedrine, dexedrine, and methadrine. Methadrine is like for intravenous speed freaks. I, I shouldn't use that disrespectful form, form but people who are injecting uh, methadrine and they become paranoid and violent and, and, and psychotic, their teeth rot. Well, dexedrine is just one step b- below that in potency. Mm. But it, it, it's, it, 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 that's all it is. It's it, it just, it just a, a, stim, a stimulant. And, um, and, and every medication can be helpful. Some can be life-saving for some people, but sadly, a lot of these drugs are just uh, sold as commercial ventures with expensive uh, advertising and and, exp- and extensive uh, marketing campaigns. 
I, I did a workshop at the American Psychological Association annual convention with a, call, a couple of colleagues, including David Antonuccio from Reno, who's a research psychologist and a really nice guy and a guy with tremendous integrity. And we were reviewing some of the data on drug companies and some of the practices that they employ, which aren't always on the up and up. And the data that shows that, for example, the drugs called antidepressants have few or no effects other than placebo effects. Mm. Now, a placebo effect can be pretty good. So if you go to a doctor and he gives you an antidepressant, you've got about a 35% chance that you'll recover and you'll attribute it to your Prozac. But if he'd given you a placebo, it would, you would have had the same effect if you thought it w was a drug. They're, they don't outperform placebos to any significant uh, extent. A colleague, Irving Kirsch, wrote a popular book on this that was reviewed uh, very favorably on the TV show 60 Minutes called The Emperor's New Drugs. Mm -hmm. And he, he runs the placebo research laboratory at Harvard uh, University. And uh, he was the first to, to show convincingly, to got all the data from the, from the Food and Drug Administration that these chemicals don't outperform placebos. And, and that was why I left full-time psychopharmacology way back in 1975, because I could see already that that, that, that was happening. But the good news, and I don't want to just be busting drug companies and being negative because the positive news is you can change the way you feel with, with, without drugs or lengthy therapy. But for some disorders like the schizophrenia that your mother struggled with and, and many of her siblings, medications can be important part, parts of the therapy. So I'm not against medication. I'm only against medications that don't work. But my goal my whole life my dream when I was a young psychiatric resident, I, I knew that the techniques, psychotherapy techniques I had been taught weren't any good. Mm -hmm. Just talk, talk, talk. Have your patients talk, talk, talk. Mm -hmm. And they cried and got angry. And I would tell my supervisors, the patient cried and was angry all session and sobbing the whole time and kept saying I'm not helping him. And then the supervisor would say, oh, that's great work, David. And I'd say, well, why is, why is that great? He said, because he's getting all that repressed anger out. Yes. That was Freud's theory. And yes. I said, well, do they recover at some point? And they would never answer that question. They would, and they would never measure anything. And now we measure at the start and end of every single session. I have brief, highly accurate scales. Patients fill out in the waiting room before the session begins. And again, in the waiting room after the session is over, and it's how depressed are you feeling at this moment? How suicidal are you feeling at this moment? How anxious, how angry, and so forth. And so I can see now for the first time, it's like an x-ray machine, how much improvement the patient has had or failed to have every single session. And so my patients have become like my teachers, and that's how the new feeling great therapy evolved, because we're measuring things finally. And I can see if I get a tremendous change with the patient, then I say, ah, oh, those are great techniques. I'm going to do, use more of those techniques. And I can also see for the first time when I think I'm doing well, but the patient really didn't improve, didn't even like what I was doing. And that has transformed my practice and that whole thing of measurement, which I've been doing since 
the late 1970s is going to transform the entire field of coaching and, and psychotherapy. And therapists will no longer, so then it's going to be required to use these type of instruments to prove that you're help, helping the patient. And just like in an emergency room, you can't run an emergency room without an x-ray machine or blood tests or thermometer or EKGs. And uh, it would be unethical. Uh, you'd be sued yeah. or worse. And I think it's the same in uh, uh, psychotherapy or, or, or coaching. We need these measures, which take no time to get because mm-hmm. they do it outside of the session. And then you can begin to see what's working and what's not working and uh, that can transform your practice. It has transformed not only my practice, but my personal life as well. Yes. I mean, I just, I think about in the seventies of you going against the grain and you following that yearning and that belief, knowing that you are seeing change and having the naysayers or whatnot saying, what are you doing? Or what, what is that that you you stayed aligned with your purpose. And I think for many, I think it's it being true to um, like your feelings are valid, you know, your sadness or anger, your hurt, all of it is valid, but there comes a time, you know, you're stuck in the yuck or you move out of that yuck. And what are the steps you can take to move out of that yuck? Exactly. I love what you're saying. Yeah. It was one of the hardest times in my life when I was trying to leave full-time academic research because they put tremendous pressure on me not to leave. Yeah. And they, they, they said things like, you've got a great career, you're already lecturing all over the world on brain serotonin metabolism, that's that so-called happy chemical that really is not a happy chemical, that has nothing to do with depression, but that was the myth that was, was and still to a certain extent is being propagated, but you've, you can, you're going to have a tremendous career, you're already getting grants, you'll get grants, you can have, you'll be you know, famous all over you know, academia for your, your work. And if you leave and go into private practice that you're, you know, that's a bridge, you know, you're burning your bridges behind you and there's no return to research. You're throwing your career away. And they kept pressuring me and the day, and it was so hard. I was in agony for several months. And the day I finally decided a a fellow a year older than me in the residency class who had graduated a year ahead of me, he said, would you like to just come over and see my office sometime and I'll show you what I'm doing. I said, yeah, Gene, his name was Gene DeQuilly. He was really a nice guy. He had a PhD in anthropology and he was famous anthropology. He had written a textbook on anthropology and then he became a psychiatrist and got his MD plus his PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went over and he showed me uh, his, his waiting room and his office. And, and, and he said, you know, you can stay on the voluntary faculty and you just have to volunteer a hundred hours of teaching every year. And then you can still be promoted if you uh, publish articles and things, but you'll be an adjunct professor rather than a normal professor. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that, that's, that sounds great with me. And he says, I'll show you something else next to the waiting room. There's this old, uh, it's like a big closet or a storage room or something, uh, but it had a window. And, and he said, you know, I bet you could get the, uh, the the building people here to clean that out and you could rent that for your office. And then it has a door to my waiting room and we could share the waiting room and you could pay for half of the receptionist who's not that expensive. And I said, oh my 
gosh, that, that is so exciting to me. I can't believe it. And I'm going to do it. And the day I made that decision, all of my anxiety disappeared and I was so joyous. And I, I've, I've never regretted that, that, that decision. And the idea that I couldn't do research was just a lot of malarkey because I collected data from my patients in my normal clinical work and, be, and learned how to analyze that data using statistical modeling techniques. And I was able to publish articles in the top, the world's top research journals for psychotherapy research and uh, had the chance to do what I want to do in my career. An academic career felt like going to a funeral, uh, to, to, to be honest. You're having these faculty meetings all the time and People, I, I don't mean to be critical, but they sometimes they do research on what they can get grant money for, mm-hmm. what's politically correct, rather than what they're excited about. Mm-hmm. And and I've done way more exciting research. I've made way more breakthroughs by leaving full-time academics than if I had stayed in it. You're doing the groundwork. You're you're with the people. You're with the yeah. You're, you're having the relationships, and you're able to help so many people. It's, um, you know, and I think that's what risk taking or just following your purpose is all about, right? Is, is to it, when one door closes and then you have this opportunity that opens up and it was something better and grander and, yeah. um, and richer. That's another great experience too. I've had a lot of times in my life when doors have closed and I've failed at something that, that I really had my heart set, set on. But it, what's, what you say is so true. It's so odd how a part of you dies, another door opens up, and then suddenly you find something even more wonderful, and you're kind of glad that other door closed. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but yeah, for me, life has become you know, just f- fantastic. It's almost too fantastic now because it's hard to keep up. Uh, I'm, I was 78 uh, in the middle of this of September, yeah. and I'm the busiest I've been in my entire life. I've, I'm more creative uh, and, and more productive than than I've ever I've ever been. There, there, I just have so many colleagues in my training group at Stanford, and it's just so much fun to treat people. Because when I treat people, and they go in one session. And you can, in my book, Feeling Great, you can read about a lot of these cases where people really miraculously recovered in one session. And if you don't believe the book, I put links to the actual sessions, which were all recorded. So you can actually hear the people being changed before your your very eyes. But I'm just so excited because I just have the chance to do really positive things with really neat, creative people. It's exciting. You know, what I love is in your book, you also talk about resistance, right? Because when there's resistance, nothing changes. So you have to be in that mindset of that things can change or like belief that things, your life. Yeah. Yeah. That resistance is why uh, therapy fails. And all of the outcome studies have shown that all forms of psychotherapy for depression barely outperform placebos. They're, they're, they're kind of like antidepressants. They have a placebo effect, but not much much more. Typically, in the outcome studies, they say uh, improvement would be a 50% reduction in depression, which to me would be failure. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a 100% reduction in one session. They're looking for 50% reduction in like 16 sessions. Mm-hmm. And, and then fewer than 50% of the patients even get that. It, it's, it's, it's really, the data is, is very poor. Although if you 
look at the people who are promoting the therapies, they put a spin on it that it's they have something wonderful. But to my way of thinking, they, they really don't. And all of those uh, cases of resistance, that's what my research over the past 40 years has shown is due to therapeutic resistance. That there's one side of the patient that wants to, to get better, but another side of the patient that will fight against getting better. And that's true in the treatment of depression. People will cling to, to negative thoughts and, and feelings, but not for the reasons that most people think. People will cling to panic disorder, anxiety, worrying, uh, phobias. People will cling to terrible marriages, to relationship problems, and people will cling to habits and addictions. There's a different reason for those four kinds of resistance. But the bottom line is, is that we've discovered why people resist. Freud tried to solve this problem 100 years ago. His whole career was devoted to understanding resistance. Why do some of us cling for weeks, years, or decades to feeling miserable, and yet you go to therapy and you kind of yes, but the therapist, you fight against the therapist. Why does that happen? And my research revealed the whole uh, importance of, of resistance in, in the treatment of depression and why people resist. That's the exciting thing. We found out the cause of all of this resistance, and that has enabled us in my, with my group at Stanford to develop amazing new techniques to uh, uh, eliminate, melt away therapeutic resistance. And it only, for most patients, it only takes about 30 minutes. And I can do it the first time I meet with someone. I, I meet with them. I find out how depressed and anxious they are. Often they'll say that they've had 40 years of failed therapy for severe depression. They're, they're not easy patients that I see for the most part. And then I empathize. And it takes about a 30 minutes to get an A or an A+. Plus from a patient in empathy, if you use certain techniques to, to form a, a very intense and beautiful connection right away. And that's necessary for good therapy. Empathy alone won't help anyone with anything, but if you've got to have it to use powerful techniques. And then I use these new techniques to bring the patient's resistance to conscious awareness and then melt it away. That takes a second 30 minutes. So now it's taken an hour and then it takes about another 20, 25 minutes to crush the patient's negative thoughts and cause the patient to go into full recovery or, or beyond. Full recovery is a total elimination of depression and anxiety, but beyond is the patient actually typically goes into what the Buddha would have called enlightenment, mm -hmm. a, a stage of uh, extreme joy. Uh, that, that, that's more than just feeling less depressed. It's feeling feeling terrific. And all my life, I dreamed about maybe something like this would be happen, would be possible. I didn't know if it would be possible, but now it's, it, it's happening and it's, uh, it's, it's mind blowing. I'm just, I'm just, just so, so excited about it. The downside though, is that a lot of therapists uh, do not want to hear wh what I'm saying. Uh, they, they, they think it's, it's BS. I think I'm a snake oil salesman. They think what I'm, claiming is is impossible. Uh, and a lot of them are members of these schools of therapy. So they're committed to something they've been trained in and they have a guru, much like like cult members. I, I don't mean to be quite so cynical, but that's really the, the way it is. And you've got your cognitive therapy cult and your behavior therapy cult and your EMDR cult and, and, and your ACT and uh, REBT and your psychodynamic cult and your psychoanalytic cult. And all these people kind of think they have, have the answer. Mm -hmm. And what I'm developing is not yet another new cult. 
but a systematic structure for how all psychotherapy works. Uh, that, that's what the new team therapy that I describe in Feeling Great is. It's the, these are the, this is what my research has shown. The, these are the keys to effective therapy, to, to, rapid, to rapid change. And I use techniques drawn. I, I've developed over 100 techniques to blast depression and anxiety out, out of the water. And they, they come from 12 different schools of, of, of therapy, uh, not just one answer that people are looking for. Everyone has responds to slightly different techniques. Yeah, everyone is different and individual based on their past experiences or their, their way. I mean, I'm blown away when you say two hours because it's like, you know, giving people techniques or trying them or applying them into their life. And then the more that you apply it, I mean, I see with my clients, you know, they'll, they build the confidence because they're trying it differently and they're doing differently. But even with that, there's always that period of you may what we call it rubber band or you may you know bounce back or those thoughts. oh yeah yeah so, so when you and you have um, a technique for that where you know when this occurs what to do and some strategies as well yeah mind. yeah relapse prevention training is crucial because when people go from severe depression to really euphoria mm-hmm. you might say in a single session they go, they go from the nothing of all or nothing thinking. They come in thinking, I'm a loser. I'll be depressed forever. And then they see that those thoughts aren't true and they become euphoric. And then they go into the all of all or nothing thinking. And they say, oh, I'll be happy forever. I'm okay after all. And it's enlightenment. And, and when you're in enlightenment, it feels like it will last forever. It seems so easy and so obvious and so incredibly joyful. But then I tell patients, uh, you know, the the probability of relapse is 100%. Mm-hmm. And I define a relapse as one minute or more of feeling really lousy. Mm-hmm. And and if you look at that definition, most of us relapse several times every week. Some people relapse several times in, in, a, in a day. And I tell the patients, you know, a, a minute of feeling awful is fine. A day of feeling awful, totally fine. Even a week of, of feeling awful when something bad is happening, that's fine too. But I don't want you to have to spend weeks, months, years, or decades again feeling like you're not good enough and, and feeling anxious and insecure and, and hopeless. And so I'm going to spend 30 minutes right now on relapse prevention training so you'll know exactly what to do when you relapse, when you fall into that black hole of depression and anxiety, you'll have a little ladder so you can climb right out again. And then we, we practice it. We do role playing. They record that session. And I say, when you relapse, play this. If, if you can't use the techniques and break out of it re- really fast. And, and then if you still can't pop out of the relapse, give me a call because I've never discharged a patient in my life. You're my patient for life. Mm-hmm. And, and I offer unlimited free tune-ups uh, for the rest of your life. I guarantee my work. Mm-hmm. And if you ever, I say, I hope you relapse, because if you don't, I'll never see you again. And just about the time I got to really knowing you and liking you, you went and recovered on me. Mm-hmm. And so I've only had a small number of people. I've had over 40,000 hours of uh, therapy with severely depressed and anxious patients. And there's only been about a dozen who ever took me up on my offer Mm-hmm. came back for a tune-up and for all but one of them it was just one session or two sessions and then they were 
totally recovered again and on their way. I had one patient who relapsed who took several months again of, of therapy, uh, but uh, she, she was the only one. And uh, I, I was just so happy. And I, and I, because of, I had that relapse prevention uh, technique and, and a lot of therapists, they think, oh, anyone can get people happy the way you do. That's just a flash in the pan. You can't keep them happy. Uh, so you're kind of a fraud. And the truth is the other way around. Relapse prevention training, I can teach to anyone in 30 minutes. It's real easy. It's just several think techniques. You talk back to the negative thoughts you're going to have when you relapse, and you remind yourself of how to do the technique that worked for you. Because once you find the technique that works for you, it'll work for you for the rest of your, your life. Uh, but that's hard. It's hard to learn how to deliver this high-speed changes uh, the, but the relapse prevention therapy is that 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 has not been a problem. And there's even been research that, that the people who read my book, Feeling Good, my first book, who recover in four weeks, then they've done long-term follow-up studies on them for up to three years, and they they don't relapse. In fact, they they continue to to get happier and happier after that initial reading of of, of Feeling Good. And they report that when they get upset, they just take the book off the shelf and read the pages that were the most helpful to them. And then they pop out of a negative mood again. And I hope it happy, happens also with my new book, uh, Feeling, Feeling Great. I, I don't, I don't doubt it. I, you know, it, it's, it is, it's um, when you have the tools, it's, you bounce back faster. And right. I've experienced that with myself and, you know, and feeling um, just going back to growing up and when you're triggered and you just feel so, so stuck and hopeless, but then yeah. these tools. So maybe I'm not in it for a week and maybe it's just a couple of days or maybe. Yeah. Right. Hours. So you build that resiliency because you know what to do. And, yeah. Right. And it's, when you experience it or when you see your clients or you see your patients do this, um, it's so rewarding. And then you also, you, you can see um, possibilities. So it's not, we're not just living day to day. We're living for pure enjoyment and fulfillment. Yeah, that's right. That, 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 that's right. And that's, you know, again, one of the secrets of, of enlightenment. The, the problem with depression for most people is we're trying to become special. I have to be uh, achieve great things to be worthwhile, or I have to be loved to be worthwhile, or I, I need to have a baby to feel happy and worthwhile, but I have no, no baby. We're telling us we need some external thing to be happy or some internal thing like uh, great success or wealth or uh, accomplishments. And, and those are traps that cause the depression. And the cure for depression although I have over a hundred techniques as everyone has the same, a different path to, to the discovery is acceptance of yourself as an average and in many ways below average human being and, and discovering that's, that's okay. Like, you know, accepting yourself with your flaws instead of fighting against them. Then you have joy. Like right now, this is fun. I'm just so honored to be on your show and to get to know you and to, to shoot the breeze. 
but are we going to get some award in broadcasting for this? And then we'll, we'll feel like special, you know, it's not like that. Uh, it's just like waking up and realizing how great that, that life is. Uh, this is a small show right now uh, that we don't have like 30 million or 80 million people listening to us. Mm-hmm. But it 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 couldn't be more fun, more rewarding, more meaningful. I couldn't agree with you more. It's um, it is. It's very fulfilling, and to be able to be in relationship with others and to see, and it's it's, and and you've even written it in your book too. It's it's so you know when I coach a a client, it's it's a mutual respect. I'm learning so much through that yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So, it's um it's a beautiful dance of uh try you know you you see them and then you see yourself through their eyes too yeah right like, how am I showing up for myself so yeah so with that yes I think um, aliveness and living and and feeling is key you know and and for those as you mentioned you know there are acute issue problems I mean I've seen it in my mother with um her Ouch. medicines and. Yeah, it's glazed, so sad. Yeah. The glazed look or the the stare. Oh yeah. And, um, but then yesterday I visited her and the light was on. We say the light bulb was on because she was engaging. She was smiling. I could see her eyes. Oh, but wow. it's um it's hot. You know it's hot or cold. So you you don't know. And um, yeah. And I just think about some of these these kiddos or just any of us. I mean, I've had a client who is bipolar, but she um stopped taking you know we weaned like i didn't wean her off her meds that was for her doctor but um but she's feeling she's feeling her emotions and she's working through the emotions and and so and she's happier so it's oh that's great to hear yeah it's it's i mean so i mean what you're what you're writing about i love that you have the tools in your book you have the spreadsheets you have the exercises that people can work through um so yes. So wow. as we wrap up, I mean, this is been, I could talk to you for so long because this is just I, it's such it's so great speaking with you and and thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I have some bonus questions, just a little bit about yourself. Um, so well, I've been looking forward to these. You said these were coming, and now I've been curious. So <laughs> let, let's let's do it. It's it's pretty pretty yeah. Easy. Um, all right. So what is, first, where is a favorite place you've traveled to? Well, I don't like traveling. Um, uh, the, my favorite place would be to the backyard. Uh, we, we, it's beautiful here where we live. There's, there's trails, there's, you know, hundreds of miles of hiking trails. And, um, uh, I used to, before the COVID, uh, not, uh, also invite the students in my and the therapist in my weekly training group at Stanford to come on Sunday hikes. Mm-hmm. And we they meet at my front door uh, Sunday morning at, at 9 or 8.30 in the summer when it's hotter. And then we go hiking for three hours, sometimes four, four hours or more. Uh, not too challenging, but fairly challenging trails with steep uphill and, and downhill and things like that. But on the hikes, I do personal work 
with them. Because again, I say the therapists have, have a lot of insecurities and they, they, uh, they, they, they need and, and want effective treatment. And, and off on a good hike and that, see, I can work with someone and others can watch while I'm working with someone. So they, they, they learn too. Like, I mean, the hikes are small, uh, maybe three people, sometimes 12 people, occasionally 15 people, but I can do a lot of, a lot of personal work. And sometimes like three people will have recovery on one hike, three different people. And it's, it's so exciting. And then afterwards we go to this place that's sadly closed now due to the COVID called the, uh, let's see, it's the something palace, the joy Luck palace mm-hmm. or joy Luck place or something like that in uh, Cupertino, Cupertino Plaza near where I live, and then we we have dim sum. I don't know if you had dim sum. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They come with the carts and all these fantastic things, and we have a, a you know, it's optional. The students don't have to come to the dim sum, but a lot of them do, and we we have a kind of a a fantastic dim sum feast, and that that's my idea of a fantastic little vacation right right here. Uh, leaving from my front door and not going too far. Mm. See, travel for me, when I was in high school, you know, we were pretty poor growing up and, and uh, I wanted to see, you know, the uh, the country. And so a fellow, I had transferred to this new high school and a fellow, Bob Smelik, was the student body president and uh, I got elected student body vice president. And so he said, why don't we go to the National Student Council uh, Convention in New York? And he said, we can hitchhike there. Oh, boy. And from Phoenix, Arizona. Oh and so my, my folks let, let, let us do this. And, and we just had a wonderful time. And we just, we called it Meeting America. And every town, he was kind of a marketing guy. That's why he was the uh, student body president. And every town we'd go into, we'd go to the local newspaper, like the Denver Post, and we said, we're hitchhiking across America, we're meeting America. And then they took uh, photos of us and wrote little articles about us. And we had the most uh, the most wonderful adventure, and it was so exciting to see the United Nations and uh, the Capitol. We got to eat lunch with the with one of the senators from Arizona. It was very gracious. We just had a, a tremendous time, and I can remember just how fascinating it was to see, like West Virginia and the South, and all the different areas. And we'd hitchhike with, you know, and someone would pick us up, and and they'd say, "Well, where are you guys sleeping tonight?" And we'd say, "Well, we just kind of have our sleeping bags." And they'd say, "Well, you can sleep at at my place." And uh, like once was a guy that had had this farm in Virginia where the uh, Civil War had been fought. And he had a whole bunch of kids, so they were excited, and they welcomed us just like family. And then uh, to kind of entertain everyone, I hypnotized one of the one of the kids, uh, you know, after dinner, and everyone was so fascinated, and he went in a trance, and I had him doing all these goofy things, and, you know, it was just <laughs> incredibly fun. So, uh, but now, you see, I, the last 25 years, I've been doing workshops all over the United States and Canada, and just going in and out of news, uh, uh, you know, airports and hotels, and 
uh, it's just uh, taken on a different meaning. And so now my vacation is to stay at home. Yes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, not living out of a suitcase. So yeah, COVID in a way has helped us to slow down and just to really be, yeah, appreciate, yeah, appreciate this time. So then I think that ties into the next question, which what brings you joy a little bit? <laughs> yeah, the, um, you know, we have a, my wife and I kind of, I used to be a dog person. I used to hate cats because they're so narcissistic and they threaten my narcissism. <laughs> but then after our beloved salty dog died, uh, she kind of converted me to a cat person. And I've really learned the joy of having relationships with cats. And I've learned a lot from, from cats. And I think some of my happiest times, I, we had one guy who, who came to our door wounded. He was a, a violent, feral cat who used to uh, terrorize our cats. I chased him out of the yard for, for I don't know, about six or eight months. And then he showed up at our kitchen door, which is a sliding glass door. And I said, why is he coming into the yard? He's, ter- he's so afraid of me. And I looked at him and I realized... He was, uh, looked like he was about to die. He was uh, uh, emaciated like, a, like he was star- starving. And he held his paw up. And, and I saw that his right front paw was as big as his head. Oh. And there'd be some terrible thing had happened. And so we started to just put food out for him. He, he, he wouldn't let us get close to him. He would snarl and you know try to bite us if we tried to get close but we, we we put food and water out gave him a box to sleep in at night which was stupid because it was so cold and rainy the box didn't do him any good at all and it, and he was just going downhill so we he was about to die so we captured him and brought him to the vet the, the vet did surgery and, uh, and and saved him he had a puncture an infected puncture wound from a fight and and so uh, slowly, slowly, uh, he, he, he started to trust us and he'd put one foot in the door. We, we fed him. We made him like he had to put his feet in the door to get the food because mm-hmm. he was, you know, afraid of coming in the house. Mm-hmm. And then one day he came in the house and, and it was just like one little miracle after the next. And then one day he jumped up on my wife's lap, which we didn't know he would ever trust to do that. And then he ended up being my best friend in the world, mm-hmm. Obi, we, we called him. He was black and uh, he was, had a big head. He was just this handsome, handsome predator, violent animal. And, and he became as sweet as you can't imagine. He, he, he fell in love with me, really. And, and I fell really in love with him. And he became my best pal in the whole world. And we spent a lot of time together. He would sleep on my chest and, and, and wake me up in the middle of the night. He'd be kneading on my chest. And then I'd start petting him and then he'd start drooling. And he got so excited, he just drooled copiously and he'd shake his head like this. And it was like being in a drool shower. <laughs> and if you don't know and love cats, you can't comprehend what's so wonderful about that. But uh, he, he that being with Obi was a great source of joy because you see, he wasn't special. He wasn't a show cat. He was just what we used to call an alley cat when I was 
a kid growing up and cats lived in the alley and got in the garbage and survived. He was that kind of cat. He wasn't going to win any cat shows. He didn't have any fancy pedigree or anything. And when he came to us, he was covered with, covered with scars, worms, fleas, ticks. Uh, he was pretty, pretty banged up. He wasn't special. And he made, made me realize that I'm, I'm not special either. But when we were together, the heavens opened up. Life became special. He taught me that when you no longer need to be special, life becomes special. And so that, that's, that's a type of thing that gives me tremendous joy. And what gives me tremendous joy is to have a student who's, who's crying and feeling insecure at the start of a session and working through their negative thoughts and distortions and, and feeling not only undepressed, but joyous, laughing, sometimes laughing uncontrollably. When I do therapy, there's a lot of humor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of giggling that, that goes on and laughter can, can kind of teach us things. But anyway, that's, that's, that's what I love is to be like with a little guy like Obi. Sadly, we lost him a few years ago. We had him for about eight years. But he would go out hunting every night from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. He was feral. You know, he wasn't raised in a home, a loving home. And so he he loved the outdoors. And and then you come back at 6 in the morning, he'd take his paw and to our bedroom door and make noise on the screen. And then we'd get up and he'd come up and climb back in bed with us. And one morning he, he didn't come back. And I knew right away that uh, probably the there's a mountain lion living behind our house and in, in the woods and probably the mountain lion finally got him but uh, so every time i go out jogging every day i call out obi like that obi i know i'll he'll never appear behind from behind a bush but i think maybe maybe a little guy can hear me in in cat heaven and and know that i still love him tremendously you know <laughs> You you exude love. You exude, and you you give you give that. You give that to yourself. You give that to others, and that's why people are so drawn to you. I can see that, and so thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's it's having hope and a belief that you know that people can change. That anything, oh yeah, anything, any pet person, you know, things can change for the better. Yeah. Early in my career, I, I asked. Aaron Beck, who was kind of my mentor for a little while, he's one of the creators of cognitive therapy. And, and I, I said, is, is it true that some patients really are hopeless? Because they all convinced me at the beginning of treatment, they, they convinced me that there really are a hopeless, worthless human being. Every patient was depressed, tried to convince me of that. And, and Beck said, well, David, that's a decision you have to make if you're going to buy into that hopelessness or not. He says, personally, I've never bought into it, and and that that point of view has always paid off for me. And so I took that point of view, and I never bought into the idea that any patient with depression or anxiety is is hopeless. And I never gave up uh, on a patient. Uh, and and that that idea has been one of the central uh, visions of uh, of my life, and it it has it's been extremely 
rewarding. But you have to keep the faith because some patients are so depressed and so good at convincing themselves and everyone around them that they're really a hopeless case that it, it, it's hard not, not to buy into that. There's a lot of pressure, really, to, to, to buy into that. No, I, I know you have to run, but um, yes, I, I do. I, I don't want this to be the last time we talk, so hopefully we can stay in. Sure, we'll do it again. Thank you so much. It's just a joy being on your show, and thank you all the people who are who are listening to, and I hope, you know, the book Feeling Good, my first one, or the new one, Feeling Great, if you're, you are feeling down, and I, I hope these books may be very helpful to you to change the way you think and feel, because it feels terrific to to feel good and you really owe it to yourself to to, to feel good um, agreed agreed things can change well thank you dr burns thank you so much and you have a beautiful day and we'll be in touch <laughs> okay thank you bye-bye thank you have a good one bye-bye I'm Ramessa Rahman Kwaja, and you've been listening to Real Talk with Rue, the podcast. Real Talk with Rue is produced by me, Ramessa Rahman Kwaja, with sound mixing and editorial support from Andy Schumacher. You can follow me on Facebook at Coach Rue and on Instagram at Coach Rue with the number one. And if you haven't done so already, you can go to Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud where you can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast filled with real moments and real conversations. See you next week for another Real Talk with Rue.